0: At the moment, we very clearly have a system that it's an ideology of self-interest. And I think we need to get somewhere that is much more focused to science and to science-led policy and to compassion.
1: Whether by a nuclear disaster, pandemic or catastrophic climate event, the apocalypse has many possible faces. But this podcast isn't about how it will happen or even what would happen if it did. It's about how we'd rebuild the staples of our societies if we had a completely blank slate to start again. This is Starting From Scratch. I'm Ollie Giu. This podcast asks, if we had a clean slate to start again, knowing everything we know now, could we do it better next time? In today's episode, I'm speaking to the musician and author Rao Reynolds. Rao's band Enter Shikari is well known for its politically charged lyrics, which have evolved and grown with each new album release. The band has released a number of companion guides to these albums, which essentially explain the stories behind the lyrics. But for their latest album, Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible, Rao has written much more than a companion guide. A Treatise on Possibility is a well-researched, thought-provoking deep dive into the vast capabilities of human ingenuity. It examines where we've gone wrong and also the tools that we need to employ in order to remedy our mistakes. Here's Rao. It was a sort of direct consequence of spending a lot of
0: my time on social media and in the last few years especially hostility has become so rife on you know you can't log on to whatever your social media platform of choice is your hatred spreader of choice is like it's just everywhere and it's so difficult to you know do what we're talking about discuss new ideas new possibilities and um, because everyone's so tribal so defensive we take everything that anyone else says in bad faith and therefore it's it's so so difficult to communicate and so I wanted to just yeah imagine a place that doesn't have those those limitations and those kind of polluting aspects of our, of our discourse. Now, I guess it was also it, it inspired by like I think it was Foucault who who talked about the idea of a, a heterotopia, which is just like a place within a place, so like a uh, a different environment within a wider structure where you can actually practice a new way of thinking or a new way of living or, or some sort of new experience. And that's, you know, that's what one thing that we try and do with our our shows as a band, we try and create a space that is outside of all this hostility and all this division. And we've heard we all know about how polarised our society is is now. And so that was, yeah, the idea for the Dreamers Hotel, just to to almost imagine that there's this place you can go where you can just concentrate on all, all, all the kind of better aspects of our nature, you know, on compassion, on collaboration, on community. And how we can connect with each other, how we can explore new ideas. And as I say, away from that polluting aspect of, of, of tribalism and sort of, you know, disrespect and incivility. Like we we know, like from psychiatry and psychology, just how bad disrespect is and, and shame and things like that, that we all thrive on on social media, you know, shaming each other and calling other people out. And that that's the one thing that is just going to make communication Impossible. If we if we don't have respect for each other, then there's no way that we can understand a new idea because it's always going to be through our, our own lens of, of, of bias and and anger um, and, and the feelings of shame. It will only just make us want to lash out back towards you know whoever we feel has has uh, shamed us. So it's um yeah it's we live in a a really really sort of difficult era in terms of proper communication of, of deep, meaningful communication. And the dreamers hotel is hopefully just a sort of, yeah, kind of thought experiment of, of how we could act differently with one another.
1: Well, let's unshackle our uh, imaginations a bit then, and uh, we're going to discuss the thought experiment of starting from scratch. Um, in your book, you explain how most of our biggest problems can be traced back to the fundamental flaws of the world's economic system. So really. I want to focus on uh, economics and politics here. What are those flaws in your view? First of all,
0: there are plenty of flaws that have been d- discussed throughout the years from, from Marx onwards. And I think the one that has now come to light as the pivotal one, the one that is going to be make or break for our species is the fact that our economic system is completely detached from nature. It's detached from its context so it's, a, it's a re- when you think about it, it's a very strange idea and this isn't a new idea you know I've sort of fir- first learned about this through like the Occupy movement and, and the fact that we cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet you know it's a, it's a very simple observation but it really changes everything like if we have an economic system that is basically predicated, on self-interest and infinite growth. You know, that that's its kind of core elements, I think with a healthy dose of short-termism uh, thrown in as well. That is so debilitating. I think it's the most visible and fundamental flaw that there is. If If you have a system that doesn't understand or respect the environment that it's employed within, you know, one planet with a certain amount of resources and if it relies on the exploitation of those resources ad infinitum then you know any it doesn't take a genius to see just the
1: the real fundamental flaw in that we can comfortably address all of these problems in my thought experiment and um, the you mm. know the problems of trying to tackle infinite growth and this sort of selfish nature that has been instilled in us through our uh, the world's economic systems but what i found interesting is your question why are we not addressing these problems now in the real world you know <laughs> it doesn't need a thought experiment surely we can address these issues
0: yeah i think that there's such a there's there's such a blinkered view i think there's there's all sorts of problems i mean there's the like, really kind of the esoteric problems of like specialization you know we're we're all ushered into very very narrow areas of expertise and that's great you know that that's what's made us have such massive leaps in te- our technical progress and our ingenuity and in all sorts of areas. But what happens is we then lose sight of the bigger picture and we're not very good at like linking phenomena together. And uh, when you look at system science and how, and you, you completely zoom out and look at the whole thing, you can see the the core problems, but we're not encouraged to do that whatsoever. And I think that's, that's one of the most damaging things that that, that we're all so blinkered and, and so concentrated on the nitty gritty. We don't realize how deep the roots run, and, and as well, it's you know it, it's it's frankly terrifying, isn't it? When when you look at the, our biggest problems, you know r- our real like existential risks, you know, be it climate change or conflict in in terms of the uh, nuclear landscape. These are, are problems that they sort of seem to, and ev- you know, every day, like people like you and me, like like we can't traverse these problems like they're just they're just massive they're bigger than us they're like colossal disorientating problems but i think one thing that needs to happen is we have to talk about the problems we have to like point at the the structural roots of the problems the economic roots and then we have to talk about them but at the moment we're not even getting that far you know a, a, any sort of talk for, from a, a the perspective of system science is is just kind of shut down straight away by, you know, people with vested interests and kind of people who have fallen for systems justification and all, you know, all these kind of interesting psychological ways in
1: which we deter ourselves from like, uh, looking at the bigger picture. Well, you think that we need to create a new system from scratch. Um, That's the whole point of the podcast. So if we uh, are going to do that, and if neither capitalism or communism are the answer, uh, what would the world's new system look like? And and have you got a name for it? <laughs> I I don't yeah I don't know what the name
0: would be. Like I mean ov- obviously there's always the the criticism of communism, which I I try and dispel in the in the, in the book. But there's also the criticism of, of technocracy because I think a lot of my thinking is that we need a more scientific approach. We need to rely on science to a, to a greater degree and then you get the problems that that technocracy kind of ran into but i think for me you can move away from that by adding compassion into the mix at the moment we very clearly have a system that it's an ideology of self-interest like that that's the core of it and i think we need to get somewhere that's a much more focused or has a much bigger commitment to science and to science led policy and to compassion a sane system would before anything understand the limits of its environment and the the limits that of the system that or or the environment that it's employed within and i think once you take away the profit motive for instance you can be much freer to concentrate on fixing core problems um, instead of being sort of constantly pressured to put profit first and then sustainability or or workability or whatever second so i suppose the energy sector firstly would be completely different and that's something that you know we can talk about now we can power the world with renewable energy completely now we've, we've known this um mark jacobson at uh, uh, is it stanford or harvard has, has been talking about this for years many of other people have joined him over the over the decades and and now it's it's, it's quite clear so this that doesn't really need to be a fantasy that could be <laughs> happening now um, there's a great study that that, that came out uh, by a i guess it's like a think tank it's like a technology forecasting think tank called uh, rethink x that shows how we can reach carbon net zero by 2035 that's very possible which is is fascinating again because these are things that we just assume aren't possible with it within a kind of lumbering difficult slow broad system of, of capitalism so yeah I, I yeah i'm not sure what it would be <laughs> what it would be called i think it, it would certainly be much more participatory and deliberative in, in terms of its politics as well um at the moment we have a you know what? What some people would would say is the weakest form of democracy. Really, it's it's representation. So we have, you know, MPs that have their their small areas that they represent, and what that allows is us all to kind of shirk not just a sense of responsibility, but any power and any kind of sense of inclusion and belonging. And so, our, and so politics then becomes just old people bickering in in suits you know <laughs> like it it becomes something that I, I know from speaking to our our fans and and music fans over the years it's just something that we feel so detached from whereas it it should be about how we survive and work together as a species we should all be involved in it so i think the politics would be very different it would be incredibly well yeah much more
1: participatory basically you, i think you've uh, said that um politics just simply doesn't work and that it's outgrown its use um would we need individual politicians or would we all have a stake in our world and our uh, government and w- w- even if you know if we have a government in the same sense that we yeah, imagine yeah. it now would would we <laughs> all be pol- politicians
0: i think to a certain extent yeah i think it's almost like you'd to carry on using the p word you'd have to kind of reclaim it to a certain extent you'd have to kind of g- like wash it of the, of the dirt and <laughs> dust that it's accumulated over the centuries um and it would it would have to be something that, you know, being a, a citizen is being a politician, and being a politician is being a citizen of your of your world, you know, that that that's what it would have to become. And I think it it would be like a more, you know, a, a deliberative democracy would be more like a kind of it's almost like you'd have a jury and each discussion, each kind of bit of whether it's you're making law or you're working out where resources to, to to go to or what comes next in you know what whatever it is uh, program you would have a very slow well in the in the topics that you can do so in in some parts of our existence we can't be slow like climate change obviously um, but we, you'd have a very slow and very detailed discussion you know it wouldn't be a debate as well that's that's an, another sort of flaw I, I think of how we think have things at the moment but the way information is presented And the way we process information is within a competitive context. And that just completely distorts, you know, (laughs) any idea of progress, because then it becomes about who can kind of deliver the best rhetoric (laughs) to support their idea. Um, Whereas actually, we should be encouraged to see all perspectives, even the ones we perhaps wouldn't be most immediately inclined to take and deliberate. Deliberatism have, uh, then,
1: is the new name of the uh, political, yeah, structure, or the economic yeah, structure. Yeah. <laughs> Deliberatism, um, and yeah. it's it's really interesting the competition element uh, that you mentioned because you know that's obviously not just in politics; that's in the entire structure of a uh, system of of infinite growth, uh, the one that you say is just no longer fit for purpose. And um, but you you'd sort of be forgiven for thinking that our competitive drive is part of human nature. Uh, the same with the fact that we, you know, we like to celebrate individualism and uh, we've got sort of greedy tendencies. Those all seem to be part of who we are in our psyche. And that's why, you know, we built this system because of those traits. So would we not find it difficult to steer away from those traits, even if we did have the chance to start from scratch?
0: Yeah, I I think we find it incredibly difficult because we're so encumbered by it. I think I think basically it's a balance, isn't it? I think of course there's a certain competitiveness within us but i think we've gone far too too much to kind of that side and we've to the point that we've completely forgotten our collaborative side really and our and our compassionate side but i mean that, that you know that that's just the way our society has become really it's so pervasive you know everything from like school children compete with other school children schools compete with other schools uh, workers compete with workers companies compete with companies nations can be against you know it, it is so pervasive it, it is the uh, another core defining aspect of our our economics and, and of our whole time really and i think i think that that's just gone plain, plainly too far i think a, a massive part of our nature is collaboration is compassion is community that you know, that's how we survived on the savannas of africa it's we're not faster than tigers it's not even intelligence. it's the it's the ability to work in large groups. That's what you know helped us survive in those in those dangerous aspects of our the early onset of our species. And you know there's I, I go into some of the the modern science as well that, that proves just how core and fundamental that drive for
1: compassion and collaboration is perhaps in this new world we don't subdue nature to the point of it being unthreatening because without the threat of what nature can do to us as a species we lose sight and lose track of that collaborative spirit because we no 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 longer need it to survive we we then hone in on other traits which feel at the time more beneficial to us
0: yeah that's a great point Uh, i mean yeah and it's, it's you know it's obviously not just nature i think you just look at the way we treat some of the the most kind of disenfranchised and impoverished people in in this society we realize that collaboration and um, community spirit on a global scale
1: is is much much needed so do you think when we're born we're born blank slates or do you think we are you know there are obviously some evolutionary traits within us but do you think we have the capacity to become anything or do you think there are inherent flaws that will that will always come out Uh, Yeah. I mean,
0: this is, there's nothing more fascinating than that question, I think. And the more I've kind of researched about that, just the more fascinating it becomes. But it seems to be to me that if you look at Robert Sapolsky and and kind of people that have been at the core of our scientific endeavor in terms of biological kind of human behavioral biology and all all that, that kind of thing, it seems that the context is incredibly important. And it's this you know, the, the discussion of nature versus nurture, it's actually just like a very nuanced, very complicated kind of mesh of one affecting the other and inspiring change in the other and genes inspiring change in our nature and, and our environment inspiring change in our genes and all this fascinating just sort of back and forth. But I think what is clear is that we are incredibly moldable so you you can you can argue in, from all different sides about the blank slate but it's it's impossible to argue against the fact we're incredibly moldable I mean, you just look at the diversity of human behavior like through throughout different societies throughout time even from from me to my neighbor <laughs> you know there, there, there's this massive spectrum and what is clear is that the environment to quite a, a large degree paves the way for how we act so if we're brought up in an environment today which is extremely focused on self-maximization, self-preservation, then it's not a surprise that we find we begin acting in those ways. And it's not a surprise that a lot of the leaders in today's society are kind of quite narcissistic, quite brutal, you know, just very self-focused. It's because they've had to be to get to those positions because that's what our society sort of rewards, encourages, motivates. Those are the the sides of our nature that it kind of increases uh, and encourages. So yeah, it, I, I think if we provided a society that <laughs> kind of coaxed us away from those more destructive behaviours, I think you'd see humans acting in a very different way. But I think one thing I'll just quickly say as well, it, it, I think it's a real testament to just how deep our compassionate side is when you look around today. And even though the central tenant of our economic system is self-preservation we still have massive amounts of charity and compassion and people giving their free time people giving their money giving their effort their their energy to help one another so even in a system where it's not economically rewarded to do that it still survives that compassion still survives i I think that's incredibly
1: telling about just how wrong (laughs) a direction we seem to be going in i've heard it said actually that we're we're addicts. You can't blame the people in the top jobs, like you say, for acting that way, because it's uh, it's how they're rewarded. They're rewarded for acting uh, for that behavior. We're rewarded for uh, that behavior. And we're addicted to it because we're addicted to growth. And you almost can't blame individuals in that respect. And and maybe if in this new world, uh, starting from scratch, we never introduced the drug in the first place, we wouldn't get addicted to it.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you have a different Reward system, you will see completely different behavior. You know, you only have to look at like addiction on on a you know a personal level, where it's whether it's drugs, whether it's shopping, you know, whatever it is. Like there are ways to rid yourselves of those urges and those destructive behaviors. Also, which is quite interesting, at the core of those destructive behaviors usually is is things that have been set upon us by the system again, you know, usually it's, it's loneliness, or it's some form of poverty, or it's some psychological difficulty that you had growing up, you know, which was all again, to do with the pressures
1: of the system. So it's funny how all these things start to, to link together. And you talk about civility a lot in the book, and also you talk about communication a lot and the importance of communicating in this new world, I think would need to be prioritised. How do you foster a sense of civility and stronger communication in a society which is open to change? Imagine that all of these people in this new world are open to your ideas. What would be your manifesto?
0: I think, first of all, you have to build structure that stops, well, what James Madison called factionalism or like our ability just to become endlessly tribal. So like in the ways in in our platforms of communication, we have to make sure that we're encouraging actual communication. So face-to-face communication has to be the pinnacle of communication and that has to be encouraged. And then you, you sort of, you have to have a hierarchy. So, you know, then we have what we're doing now, a video call. And and at the very bottom has to become text-based communication because there's, there's a lot of data now that shows how how much more immediately we will become disrespectful we will demean we will ostracize we will shame people when we're just conversing via text and it's quite scary when you think about the bulk of communication happens on twitter or by email or like you know it where it's just so easy to misconstrue to misunderstand to take things in bad faith so there has to be a very evident hierarchy and we have to be taught the ways that communication fails we have to we have to be taught how to communicate because it's got to that stage i think in in our current society where where we we just don't we think a debate is communication we think shouting at each other and not curiously thinking about what the other person is saying or their perspective or how they came to that perspective you know all these things are just completely forgotten about it's all about winning so that would be the first thing to make sure that the structure of communication and and obviously of digital communication is very aware of the ways in which we easily fall back into hostility and tribalism i I would say also like mindfulness i think is a big part of this of of people becoming more empathetic and more mindful of their words how they affect others the the kind of chain reaction that that can have and then how they treat you how they treat others you know hostility has been shown to be incredibly contagious on social media but so is compassion so if if you if we're starting with a, as you, as you say with like a a society that's that's at least intrigued or giving us a chance to to lay the the foundations of kind of social media structures and communication structures that that will be much less hostile than they are now then, yeah, that has to play a massive part of it. Um, I think uh, mindfulness and empathy and compassion, you know, all, all these things we know, I think we know deep down that they're they're kind of pivotal. Um, it, but the, the problem is we don't employ them in a structural sense. We employ the complete opposite because nothing brings people, say, to an online platform more than hostility. Immediately there, the profit motive is to bring people online, obviously, to get them to see the advertising. So the advertising revenue goes up, the company profits. So therefore, the kind of social media or communication companies are not incentivized to to lower hostility, uh, because it's the one thing that brings people online more than anything. Yeah. And and then I would say, uh, lastly, that you have to look at misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and all that kind of thing. That has to be Dealt with, I think you know, in a very careful and scientific manner, and and the same with the ability for communication pra- platforms to show people only the, the extremes. So you know, when you have a tribal world, one group sees the other group's extremes a lot more than they see the bulk or the the, the moderate uh, view of the of the group that they they perhaps disagree with, and you know, again, that that's because what gets the most retweets or shares or, or whatever it is it's it's things that are the most extreme oh my god have you seen this like you know that's what's spread all around social media and, and that's why fake news travels six times faster than proper <laughs> news so to speak uh, on Twitter so yeah th- th- there's lots of things we'd, we'd have to to look at but fundamentally there has to be this idea of creating a compassionate ability you know platform uh, opportunity for us to, to to speak to each other without getting dragged into the uh, the lion's den uh, every
1: time even a slightly contentious subject comes up you say that we need to um embolden our imaginations that we need to increase our capacity for creative thinking and i feel like your book has allowed me to do that even though i still am finding it difficult to actually change my own behaviors based on what you've written because there is so much there to act on and yet kind of fundamentally as a human being it's very difficult to change isn't it but the first step to change is is uh, increasing our capacity for creative thinking what are the best ways we can do that you mentioned mindfulness as being something really important to you in that respect but is there are there any other ways that maybe we could integrate into life in my new world
0: yeah, uh, oh, there's so many. Um, I'll concentrate on two, because I think they're the two most, perhaps not the most obvious, but the most interesting. Play. Play is so important. Like it's, you know, again, in, in, in today's society, it's often th- it's demeaned as kind of a childish thing. Um, it's demeaned as kind of not an important thing, whereas it's becoming clear from anthropological studies, biological studies, that play is imperative to understanding to building knowledge as as humans to building perspective to building empathy so play would become a pivotal aspect of of our society and even for adults as well <laughs> again this is we've sort of we come to think that everything must be about making money basically and if, if it's not if that's not a, a what it's doing then it's 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 just childish it's it's an immature thing that we should grow out of and the I present the work of the psychologist, Peter Gray, in the book, and he basically says that we're now living in what he describes as a play deprivation experiment. Uh, we've had this gradual, but but overall, like really dramatic decline in our kids' freedom to play with other kids, like without adult direction. So I'm not talking about sports. I'm not talking about, you know, adult directed play. This is free play, as, as he calls it. From the anthropological studies, it's clear that play is central to a child's whole upbringing you know throughout like hunter-gatherer societies like if you want to go back over the millennia but the, the surviving societies that are there today it's still imperative it produces kids that are risen in environments that encourage play rather than today's society which you know it's often too dangerous to let kids just go and play by themselves there's there's less and less places for them to play you know now it's just the best they've got is a is a half not busy street as opposed to like a, they're lucky if they even have a playing field and a slide you know whereas you know we've grown up in societies in hunter-gatherer societies where that you're just free and in, in the woods <laughs> to discover things and to there's this idea that they the children watch the the elders and the parents and the, the people in their in their groups and that's how they learn they then play play out you know acting the the things that they're The caregivers are are, are doing, and it turns out that a lifestyle that that embraces play produced some of the like brightest, happiest, uh, most cooperative, most well-adjusted, most resilient children that you know there there are or there can be. So that yeah, that's fascinating. And the second one I would say is, is is nature. If we want to encourage imagination and creative thinking we have to get back into nature. So not only do we have to like just stop exploiting it and then start respecting it, we have to be amongst it. You know, that has been shown to strengthen our hippocampus, which is the the part of your brain that's most linked to imagination. So that part of the brain is really adversely affected by stress. It's like particularly vulnerable to the stress hormone cortisol, which I'm sure we all know about. So getting back into nature is a way of like, not just dealing with stress, but also dealing or, or helping your ability to be imaginative and to, and to be creative. So obviously play is a way that, that we develop creativity It's a way that we develop imagination. And so is nature. And these are two areas that have been drastically, not just overlooked, but, but demeaned by our modern economic system.
1: Well, Raoul Reynolds, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Your book is a triumph. It was a pleasure to read and um, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Cheers for having me. Thanks so much to Raoul Reynolds from Shikari, and do go check out his new book, A Treatise on Possibility. And thank you to you for listening. For more episodes, you can find Starting From Scratch wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting ogpodcasts.co.uk.